Hey everyone, this is Jeff Wu with the Healthier Modern Nutrition HVMN podcast. And this gentleman that I'm about to bring on next really needs no introduction for folks who've been in the metabolic health, ketogenic space. Uh, Professor Dom D'Agostino is one of the pioneers, especially in the modern era, not just on the science side, but also popularizing and helping explain to you know, folks in the sporting world, the, the everyday practitioner, the hobbyist, as well as helping inspire the next generation of researchers. Dom, awesome body of work thus far, but I know you're just getting started. Great to have you back on the program. Great to see you again, Jeff. Well, we were just talking, I saw you last year uh, around this time a little bit more than at Metabolic Health Summit. And then it's been like a couple years since we sat down together and actually did a podcast. So it was about time that we do this again. Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, it, it is funny that yeah, this was January 2020, right? I think we had heard yeah. of some virus that was mainly primarily over in China or Asia. It was a little bit scary, but it did not rise above anyone's radar. I remember, you know, a couple of folks there were sick and it was like, oh, it's just probably a cold. And I, it, yeah. it did not re like reach above my personal threshold of, of, of like normal seasonal sickness. So very interesting yeah. to see the last year transpire. But I think that's also just top of mind. I remember going into 2020, metabolic health ketosis was one of the most hot, attractive fields of nutrition and physiology research. And in some ways, the pandemic epidemiology, virology has taken that kind of air and oxygen in the room. But in some ways, metabolic health is more important than ever, given what we understand about the comorbidities and the mechanisms of action and potential additional resiliency to a lot of the topics that we talk about. So curious to hear from your perspective, how has the year been either personally, academically, as you're a, a teaching professor to, you know, research world? I mean, the world has definitely changed since we last saw each other in person in, 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 in Los Angeles till now. Yeah. And maybe that event was like a super spreader event or something because it was sort of Brewing. And I think, you know, a lot of our lab did get sick when we got back. I had a little bit of a scratchy throat, but, you know, I have not been sick really in the last 10 years. When I went to Honduras, I came back, had a little stomach bug, but for the last decade, I haven't really not been sick at all. And I attribute that to like nutrition and just lifestyle kind of things. So personally, things have been uh, good here. We're, we live on a farm and it's been nice to, you know, I'm at my desk now at home on lunch break, just looking out over the cows in the pasture. And that that's fun. So it's, I like, I actually like working at home. I was in the lab this morning. So I got some stuff done, paperwork signed, met with students, stuff like that. I tend to split my day half and half. And yesterday, I guess I was in the lab all day, but all teaching is online. So I teach medical neuroscience. I teach medical physiology, neuropharmacology, and then we have a lot of exceptionally good undergrad students, honor students, and PhD students. And then, of course, Angela, the research associate, postdoc, you probably know Dr. Andrew Kutnick, who's also at Institute for Human and Machine Cognition, doing some really cool stuff with NASA and, and many other projects he's juggling. Um, everybody has been super busy. We are busier than ever. The last year has just been crazy. I think we ended up with like maybe like a dozen publications actually working on just finished my last chapter for the updated version of this book. And uh, Susan Massino is a chief 
editor, but also Dr. Jung Ro, Dr. Eric Kossoff, and Detlev uh, Oizen. He's at Rutgers University. I'm a section editor of this. Uh, we have two chapters in this. Uh, Brianna Stubbs has a chapter two on performance. It's a massive effort, and it's the 100-year anniversary edition of this book, which came out four years ago. It's every four years we plan to do it, but it will be the Bible of like science. So basic science, clinical science of metabolic therapies, tons of exogenous ketone studies in here by top level academic, you know, Ivy League uh, uh, people, folks in there. So that has been a massive effort. And I just finished it to today, at least my section of that. And that should be coming out soon. We had hoped to release it like at this year's metabolic health summit, which got canceled. But that will happen in, I believe, May of 2022. And the virtual event just was not something. So Metabolic Health Summit is really about networking and face-to-face -face interaction. And we just did not want to go like the virtual sort of conference route. But Angela and Victoria and I was just sort of the oversight put together an ebook. And I don't know if you got the ebook of all, basically they compiled all the research of 2020 related to met metabolic health and put it into an ebook. So uh, if you're not signed up for Metabolic Health Summit, like go to the website, register and everything, and then you'll get a copy of that ebook, which was like a massive effort because so much research is coming out now. It's like an exponential curve. Just look on PubMed or Google search, of course, but PubMed is really kind of where it's at when it comes to emerging science of ketogenic diets, exogenous ketones. I gave a workshop at the NIH, mostly for like seizures, but I had to review all the studies that are currently on clinicaltrials.gov. And it was like, well, a couple months ago, it was 87 trials. You just go to clinicaltrials.gov and type in ketone supplement. And you have like about 87 trials at the time. And at least half were like actively recruiting. Many were in progress. So, you know, like two or three years ago, like there was like zero, there was like none. <laughs> it might've been like one or two, but I've, it's been really fun and almost surreal to see an explosion of this research. And I think, you know, interest in product will follow the science. I think the science will have to happen and be published. And then that'll spawn more interest in people using exogenous ketones, not just for, you know, therapeutic applications, which I think is the cornerstone of what we do, but for general health and wellness and longevity and glycemic control performance, all those things. I think there's a lot of, a lot of benefits. hundred percent. Let's, let's definitely do unpack that, but just yep. speaking about metabolic health summit and just wanting to compliment the effort that you and your team have put together, you know, I, I would not say that I've been back in kind of the academic space in a long time, but in terms of the diversity of and caliber of people, it's a fun, not just like socially fun, but like very, very top tier academics on the science side, but you also have like the kind of the influencers, you know, people with millions of followers on YouTube and Twitter, as well as industry and then professional athletes, it's like very cool mix. And I think that feels like the almost like the the future of how science should be done in, in, a, in a sense that science should not necessarily just be in an ivory tower, which is abstract away from real people, right? We as American mm -hmm. taxpayers fund a lot of this science. And I think one thing that I think more forward leaning or more uh, thoughtful academics researchers are trying to gauge the public where I feel like some of the more traditional academics almost look at 
engaging the public as a low class or like not tasteful. I'm curious if you have thoughts there. I mean, you agree with me or you're just like, yeah. hey, I don't know. Like, do you, I think do you, you said it. Maybe traditional ac- academic faculty world. Well, I'm glad you said that because it, I think there is, there's a little bit of like maybe academic snobbery when it comes to, you know, what a level of, and even from a faculty standpoint, like you don't get approved for certain conferences, unless they meet like certain criteria, is it, it, you know, connected to a society that has been around, you know, for a hundred years? Like, I mean, we go to American Physiology Society, Society for Neuroscience, like these are like, you know, the staple conferences I attended for many years, but Metabolic Health Summit, and I think I appreciate you kind of giving a shout out to it is like the next evolution of conferences. And I'm just, maybe I'm biased because I'm a part of a co, you know, organizer of that, but we wanted it to be a synergistic relationship between industry partners and, but not to make it like, you know, an industry promotional thing for it. It's because there's so much synergy between these companies, many entrepreneurs rush into the market to create the technologies that are helping scientists that are helping these clinical trials. Like we would not the advancement of the science would not be happening without the companies that are supplying the products for us to test and the innovation. So we need to have innovation. And our current president actually has that vision for uh, University of South Florida, Dr. Steve Corral, not, not the not the comedian Steve Corral, but it, Steve Corral, he, he has a book called Organize Innovation. And this idea that universities academic universities need to be partnering with industry and especially startup companies to really advance the science and the application of that technology. And I think, you know, uh, Metabolic Health Summit is playing a role in that, but to also bring in not just influencers, they help to get the word out. That's important. But people, the general educated public that have an interest in this topic, because we want to serve them as best as possible. So we have clinician scientists. So there's like clinical and then there's basic science. And some of that may be over the head of some people, but then you have the attendees are very educated in this space, even more so probably than their doctors. Right. So they tend to be like outside of the spectrum of like, you know, normal people (laughs) as they just, they're just read up. They listen to podcasts, they read the literature. And then we have maybe the most important factor here is just the companies that we've partnered with, which is our sponsors. And they help, you know, financially to make the, make this possible. And we try to, you know, have a reasonable registration fee, but we try to give back to our community, like, you know, doing the ebook and, and, you know, packaging the information back. So, uh, we can make it accessible to people, but it's important to budget the amount of time in so people can network with the speakers. So we encourage our speakers to network with the attendees, to network with the companies, so they get to know the companies and they spend a lot of uh, time and, and time FaceTime with the companies out there that are bringing these innovative products to market. So, uh, you know, other, other conferences sort of have some of these, you know, elements, but I feel like Metabolic Health Summit kind of goes, are really trying to synergize the interrelationship between industry, academia, clinical science, and then, yeah. you know, and, the and attendees. And it's funny when you say that there's like these hundred year societies and it's almost like they're mm-hmm. gatekeepers, right? And I think that's yeah. so anti-science principles to say, mm-hmm. oh, you need some qualification to therefore participate in the pursuit of truth, which to me is very anti-scientific principles in terms of everyone should have access to data. Everyone should be able to interpret. I mean, there's absolutely a role for 
professionals and, and, and folks who literally know the most about the space because that is a professional job and they have the most experience. Mm-hmm. But it, to me, that authority is not because of a title. It's because of knowledge. They are describing truth. They're describing the model of metabolism and physiology better. And therefore, they've earned it through knowledge and, 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 and yeah. a better mapping to truth rather than their academic tenure or their title. And I think a lot of like the, you know, I would say that, you know, the folks who kind of define science would agree with that, that perspective where, you know, Galileo, a lot of these seminal scientists were in some sense outside the traditional power structures of their time. Einstein was a patent examiner, for example. Yeah, that's right. right. So I, I think in, in that sense, hopefully it's inspiring that yeah, and I agree with you in terms of like a lot of the conference folks that I've met in person was just one cool to just meet with people that I like have been hanging out on Twitter on. But then two, they're so sharp in the sense that most, I would say, not most, I would say some doctors are comfortable with their title and they do not therefore follow up with the latest literature. So oftentimes their understanding of metabolism and physiology is 20 years outdated. I mean, they're just not keeping up to speed with the latest research trials and data. And then you have these hardcore hobbyist uh, amateurs mm-hmm. who, again, again, I don't have a traditional academic background, but I would say that, hey, I'm like talking apples to apples and, you know, people, it, it is not obvious who has better knowledge, folks that have non-traditional backgrounds or traditional backgrounds. And I, and I love that. I think that is uh, just a pattern of how the future will go with the decentralization of finance or cryptocurrencies. You see the internet, you know, decentralizing information flow. I think it's going to happen with science research as well. And I think folks who are in a position to kind of dictate funding resources, academic flow, um, I think pulling in the community is going to be so valuable in in terms of where I see the most impactful science, especially science that impacts other people, right? It's as much of movement of a scientific inquiry to understand truth, but also translating that in a way that people understand Uh, Hmm. in some sense, Science is a way to understand the world better to then therefore build tools to make life better for everyone. Yeah. And, and a lot of the research is taxpayer supported, federally funded research. And I think the community that should be open access. And, uh, you know, I've ran into people who uh, there was a Parkinson's uh, patient that I was talking with. I mean, her education, she had something completely different. I think maybe environmental journalism or something like that. But I mean, her education was podcasts like Peter Tia's podcast, like with the show notes and and Google. And when she doesn't learn something, she'll look it up. And she was so read up on this stuff. And I had a, a meeting with her and she was like educating me on some things that I had to take. I took a lot of notes and <laughs> spent half the day researching some of the things that she had brought up, you know, that was related to, you know, when you have a personal interest and from a personal perspective, if you're managing a disease process, you find that a lot of these people have dug into things that are opening your eyes to different modalities. I mean, just at that point, I think yeah. that's, mm-hmm. I think a sign of a true scientist, right? You're, yeah you can learn from every single source, right? Like, yeah, like that is, I mean, that, that, that's cool, right? Like, cause I know a lot of academics would be like, okay, anec- anecdote from a non-educated, non-tenured person, waste of my time, right? Which is, which is a shame yeah. because yes, you need to triage information. We can't like absorb everything all the time. But I think, I think the greatest scientists are just actually humble because you're mm-hmm. you, no one, like we're all learning what the true model of metabolism is. Yeah. And I'm always skeptical of the people who are not very humble and very kind of 
you know, set in their ways or thinking. And where if you show them data, they would not change their mind to the other. So you have to, you have to definitely keep an open mind. Science is advancing so rapidly and new data is, should be changing your mind about some things. But yeah, we live in the information age where, I mean, there's just like so much info. It's just like overwhelming. Cause I just want to read, I have a pile of papers on my desk. I want to read and I just try to cut through and, and get to as much as possible. There's a lot of bad science out there too. So I think, you know, our next blog will be covering a publication in nature, which talked about ketones causing cardiac fibrosis, which is, you know, mitochondrial disruption and, and, uh, or decrease in mitochondrial biogenesis. So that, you know, it, we, I dug into that from different perspectives and realized, you know, this is bad science. How did this get through? And the human patients did not, were not even on a ketogenic diet. They had heart failure, but it's like they somehow linked it to the, you know, the ketogenic diet. So you have situations where sometimes science get published in high impact journals where it squeaks through and then they do a press release on it and it just gets you know, really, unfortunately, publicity. So we have to, that's where it comes with the educated public, where you have to deconstruct, you know, the methodology, I just go right to the methods, you know, that'll tell you the truth. 100%. I think that's actually a perfect segue. I'd love to dive into that paper. So I, I remember we, we chatted offline about this, it kind of went around the circles, especially in the ketogenic world, where there was a nature publication, obviously, nature is one of the top journals in the world. And essentially, as, as you described, a lot of uh, potentially negative results in terms of a ketogenic diet or exogenous ketones for car for cardiovascular health, right? And, and a lot of the yeah. pre-existing literature suggested very much a 180, completely opposite, where ketones are potentially very therapeutic or protective of the heart. Pretty much and all the right. <laughs> I think I think yeah. a lot of just like yeah, a lot of uh, eyebrows raised and discussions on on the internet, on Twitter, on the blogosphere is about that. So. Can you, can you help walk us through that or at least give a preview of, uh, of your formal write-up? Yeah. So we looked at it. So there's cell studies and they had cardiac myocytes uh, that were studied and they did quite a bit of epigenetic work on that. And I have, I have a student, PhD student studying epigenetics. So they were able to vet that, <laughs> the validity of that and the CERT7 pathway. I mean, I guess I'll start with the cells and just talk about the animal studies and then um then a little bit about the uh, human, which is completely irrelevant. But the uh, the CERT seven pathway that they're looking at, really, the activation of that pathway, they were linking that to a decrease in mitochondrial biogenesis, and everything hinged on a pathway that they felt was decreasing mitochondrial biogenesis and kicking on uh, essentially what was cardiac scarring or fibrosis. But interestingly, it's a stress pathway that's usually associated with a cardioprotective effect and a protective effect against oxidative stress. And so we, you know, I had to read through a bunch of papers on this particular pathway, but they were linking it. And it's important to acknowledge too that, you know, I, mean, I have a paper in front of me now and I'll, sh you know, showing, I don't know if you can see that in the light, but, yeah. uh, but the title is uh, the failing heart utilizes three hydroxybutyrate as a metabolic stress defense. So this particular study and many studies like it, I mean, it's from university of Pennsylvania, temple, Duke university, university of Minnesota, a couple other, you know, uh, big universities, you know, this particular study that 
demonstrated ketone bodies and they did link it back to beta hydroxybutyrate and they said acetoacetate was did not cause this effect so they said very specifically beta hydroxybutyrate was activating this pathway that was decreasing mitochondrial biogenesis and causing fibrosis. I could see Dr. Veach turning over in his grave because he was very adamant that acetoacetate was not beneficial to the heart, but I feel it's, it's it was neutral to the heart or else we would have seen something come out. But I was, I was firmly, you know, he convinced me, he was the first one to convince me of the benefits of beta hydroxybutyrate enhancing the hydraulic efficiency of the heart, you know, when it was fueled in a, in a working heart preparation, which is a pretty cool preparation when you study it. And then Peter Crawford, who I know did some incredible work on cardioprotective effects. So this particular group that published the negative study, I think they were all from China and they're from universities I was not familiar with. Uh, they did some elegant work in the past, but not particularly in the ketogenic diet space, uh, some in the metabolic space, but not so much the ketogenic diet space. But the, the model system they used was appropriate. The results were convincing to the extent of the methodology, but I feel their interpretation of the results and, and also the levels of ketones that they use. And they did actually use, uh, it was hard to find this, but you have to go to supplementary data and then you have to look up the ID number of the lot that they got from some obscure, or maybe it might've been Sigma that they got beta, but it was racemic beta hydroxybutyrate. So that that's important. Uh, it still elevates the D beta hydroxybutyrate, but you also have the, the L form and the acetoacetate they like made in a lab through some process, which I was kind of very interested in. So it looks like they're a legit science group, but I feel that they were biased in a way to achieve a certain result to support some other work that they did in the past, or maybe their funding agency. But there was just something not that, that did not resonate. The cell studies were the most legit and interesting to me because we're doing some of those studies now, but the pathway that they said is activated should do the opposite. It should actually enhance the stress resilience of the cardiac myocytes. Right. And I just uh, interject here. I mean, people talk about yeah. sirtuin activations as something that they want to target, right? So it's like yeah. counterintuitive. Yeah, they do. And I was not as familiar with Cert 7. So it's like, oh, this is cool. Let me, let me, you know, I send it to my student who just like does send me like tons of information on this more than I could really digest, but she delved into it and then sent me a couple papers, but it's very counterintuitive. Their results do not mesh with previous results in any way, shape or form. So it, it was kind of, unfortunately it got published in nature and then the animal studies. But that before moving they, to the animal studies, yeah. did, did you recall how, how high was the uh, millimolar concentration of BHB? In very high. Studies? It was actually, uh, well, so they titrated in the racemic and I was going to get to that. So they, they actually used, it was kind of physiologically relevant, but it was still high considering they were using the racemic mixture and then with the acetoacetate. So it was not completely clear, but what I think is that they used a really high dose of ketones higher than normal. I know in the animal models they did because they were getting like a, a D beta hydroxybutyrate level that was similar to a very strict ketogenic diet, but not accounting for the effect that they were getting uh, an additional amount, uh, an equal amount of the L beta hydroxybutyrate. And then when you factor in, they also threw in acetoacetate at a similar level or about half the ketones were like in the ketoacidotic range. 
So, and they did not give it orally, they injected it, which has a completely different dynamic. I actually remember, you know, kind of when we first started injecting the ketone ester in mice, like we lost quite a few, it became very toxic uh, in mice because it just hits their metabolism. Whereas if they ingest it, it's more of like, you know, it, it gets into the system slower, but, and we at a pretty low concentration too. So so they had these kind of squirrely experiments where they was kind of hard to find out what they were actually doing. And then if you dig into and find the actual molecules that they were using and do the calculations, they were getting ketone levels that were way higher than you can get, you yeah. know, uh, yeah, through which oral I think administration. Like, yeah. Which is like super, super relevant. Right. Cause yep. essentially my interpretation was that there were so overdosing the the amount of exogenous mm -hmm. ketones that you're putting p these animals or these cells in acidosis, right? You're yep. changing the pH, making the environment so acidic. Yep. Therefore, you're probably not measuring the benefit or detriment of ketones or beta hydroxybutyrate. You're really measuring ac acid damage, right? Yeah. <laughs> like if you put vinegar on some cells, those cells aren't going to be super happy either. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we've seen the science. Like, you know, we can create ketoacidosis pretty easily in animal models with uh, ketone esters, or if we inject ketones, we don't see it if we deliver it orally, unless we gavage, unless we do an intragastric gavage, and then we can create it. But it's so much more natural just to take whatever molecule you're using and integrate it into the food and then feed it that way. That's really the only legitimate way, I think. And you can titrate it in, you can put it in the water and measure it, you can put it into the food, because if you know, they have to eat a certain amount of food each day for weight maintenance, and then you calculate, you have to measure the amount of food that they're eating, and then formulate the food. So you deliver X amount, it takes a little bit more time, but they could have had a legit study because when you inject, you know, the ketones, it goes around, it bypasses first pass metabolism. And, and the liver is like the boss of the body. It's like the master regulator, right? And there's an interesting effect when you consume ketones, it changes metabolic physiology by, you know, decreasing glucose, maybe hepatic gluconeogenesis, but glycogenolysis. So glucose, release of glucose goes down for reasons we don't fully understand, but it happens. And that's one of the big therapeutic effects, I think, of ketones. Yeah, um, I mean, it doesn't make sense to inject esters because like the whole point is that there's a lot of natural gut esterases that breaks mm -hmm. down that you know the ester bond between the two ketone molecules right between so so in some sense like you get none of the benefits of an ester if you're just injecting it directly like you might as well just yeah. inject you know uh, an iv of ketone salts yeah and gavage is a little bit tricky but i mean if you have a trained person they can do uh the gavage well they just need to train and and if you you got to train in a way that's not stressful for the animal and mice are harder than rats you have to there's like a there's like a, an art to doing it but yeah it's clear that well they were not using the ideal ketones i think and they were putting animals into ketoacidosis also their ketogenic diet was by weight something like 62.7 percent or 72 70 67.2 or something it was very high and the only fat was primarily cocoa butter and soybean oil so that was like by weight so if you do some calculation like back of the nap calculation a napkin calculation you it comes out to like 90 percent fat from coconut oil and soybean oil and actually i had got these chips from uh this is cocoa butter which 
I consumed it. I put dumped a hundred grams into my coffee and drank it. And like an hour later, my ketones were 0.3. And I was like, oh, this stuff's not even ketogenic. But then I went and did some stuff around the property and came back like three hours later and it was high. So they did get, they have higher than what would be expected. I'm not totally against cocoa, but I've never seen a study. Like they're not using any kind of relevant ketogenic diet because I could not find any kind of study that used anything remotely similar. And there's palmitic acid. And some people say it's, that's cardio, not the best, some cardiac uh, issues associated with the elevation of, of that fatty acid. But what was also interesting is that the methionine, my student caught that the methionine concentration was three times higher in the ketogenic diet than in the control diet. And I wouldn't have caught that. And, but she delved in and got got the, the whole uh, micronutrient breakdown of the diet. So that was kind of interesting. So if from the perspective of just looking at it from a methionine restriction point, they were, they were actually comparing the ketogenic diet to a uh, methionine restricted diet. So they didn't, you know, of course, didn't talk about that at all. Also the, the standard, their control diet, I think was like a lower in protein too. And then you know, it's, it kind of, it mimic what you would, if you're trying to develop a longevity diet, a methionine restricted diet, you know, you would have, would, you would have used their control diet. So their control diet was about a third of the methionine that you would typically find in a normal rodent standard diet. So I did not, my student brought that to my attention and also brought the intention that the methionine concentration of the ketogenic diet was right on the edge of being like a high methionine diet. So it was like in the higher range, it was higher than like what we use, for example. So uh, that could have been a factor too, but this weird, you know, using just that particular fat at that concentration mixed with soybean and then casein and with the methionine being three times higher, I think that probably had something to do with the results too, but they did not talk about that. <laughs> yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, at the very minimum interesting confounders mm -hmm. at maximum maybe yeah i mean the conclusions yeah you know and i think that's what, what's in debate like it's hard to conclude something when they're that big of a confounder right like exactly i think to your point methionine yeah. restriction uh is one of the more robust you know ways to uh extend health span in terms of a nutrition intervention so just like these are yeah. quite powerful interventions already that and confound the the the, 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 the two arms yeah, we have actually not done any methionine restriction stuff, but we keep talking about it, but we have not, you know, we just try to keep that variable pretty stable. But I think the most egregious thing about the study was that the I went right to the human, the methods on the human, and basically they had individuals that had atrial fibrillation and cardiac pathology, and they were able to acquire cardiac tissue from patients that had cardiac you know, myopathy. And they looked at the metabolites in the cardiac tissue and found that beta hydroxybutyrate was elevated. So I think what they discovered and what they reported is actually, you know, I think it would be like the title of, of this paper that I was showing you, the failing heart utilizes three hydroxybutyrate as a metabolic stress defense. So they were taking people that were not in any way, shape or form on a ketogenic diet and uh, their cardiac tissue indicated that ketones were elevated. 
in that. And it would make sense from the perspective of, you know, you can ask the question, is this a consequence or is it a compensatory mechanism? And I think the general field uh, agrees that it's a protective compensatory mechanism that the heart is utilizing beta-hydroxybutyrate and ketones as a metabolic stress defense. And that's like the general consensus of people who are not even sort of biased in the direction of <laughs> ketogenic diets or ketones. That's the general consensus. But they have their conclusion is that, well, if people with cardiac myopathy and atrial fibrillating heart failure have elevated ketones, then the ketones must have done this, <laughs> which is totally backwards. So this is not thinking. an interventional study. This is an observational. Yeah, exactly. In so I, uh, if there's one population of people who should, ha who would have cardiac fibrosis or cardiac, you know, uh, issues associated with the ketogenic diet, it would be the epilepsy community where, you know, a number of, of, neurologists, epileptologists, and dietitians have monitored patients on these highly restrictive, very, very ketogenic, you know, classical ketogenic diets, like four to one, three to one for over a decade. So, you know, Mackenzie Cervanka, who's at Johns Hopkins, who runs the uh, epilepsy clinic there, and Dr. Eric Kossoff, uh, who was mentored by John Freeman, who really developed the, the, the Johns Hopkins epilepsy ketogenic diet program. So I contacted them about this and I, I know them pretty well and asked them for their opinions and they read it and they were just sort of shaking their head. I think Eric was supply was like, sigh, I can't believe this got published. And, uh, you know, he's been monitoring patients, one patient for over 30 years on a strict ketogenic diet and, and numerous patients over 10 years. So you're not going to find any better representation of what a ketogenic diet can do to cardiac health than this population in terms of just the you know the conclusion it's like saying okay we observe ambulances at a traffic accident and it, it, because we oftentimes see a lot of correlation that ambulances happen to be at traffic accidents do ambulances therefore cause traffic accidents right that is essentially the same analogous logical error that potentially these researchers are, are, are concluding with, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, and I think most people can see through that if they read the paper, but if you read the headlines or the title or the last two sentences in the abstract, they're not going to take the time to go through the methodology to actually look at like who the human patients were <laughs> in, in that case. But, you know, it kind of does, it's, it, it brought to my attention, is this something that from their perspective, they were not taking the angle that people with epilepsy should not use it, but they took the angle that people who are obese and have, you know, that they were, their main contention was that people are using this as a long-term weight strategy. In the context of losing weight, pretty much all your markers go in the right direction. And, uh, and it would be, and we know the ketogenic diet, which it doesn't have to be ketogenic. It could be just a low carbohydrate restricted diet is an effective way to create a calorie deficit, to get your metabolism, to decrease the insulin resistance that's in many people preventing that mobilization of fat. And, and creating that calorie deficit and the appetite suppression. So it, it becomes a pretty big disservice and it creates a lot of confusion. And I think that's, that's the problem because I've gotten uh, emails from parents who have kids that are using a ketogenic diet for managing, you know, a serious 
disorder like epilepsy or various disorders where the ketogenic diet is a standard of care. And then they have concern because their child is young. And then if they're following this for decades, are they going to die of a heart attack? And I have to like kind of reassure them and, you know, send them quotes and just reach out to the experts. You know, there's one disorder, glucose transporter type one deficiency syndrome. And I think Dr. Klepper, uh, he's a, a neurologist uh, who's clinician who has studied kids for 10 years and did all the cardio, you know, cardiometabolic markers. And, you know, there's no evidence to support that this is damaging to, and if, if this was to show up in any way, it would be in that community, you know, for weight loss, people use it for a couple months and then become weight stable and then gravitate to more of a, you know, uh, a lower carb or just, you know, calorie restricted diet, who, wh whatever they want. But th the ketogenic diet remains a low carb, very low carb diets remain a very viable tool for healthy and safe weight loss. And, and I think, and it, I think the jury's not out. I think the jury's in <laughs> that these diets are good long-term, especially if they can be used for weight maintenance and people that were previously like obese or overweight, they improve many biomarkers. And then there's the LDL issue. And that's a whole nother thing that we can get into. But, uh, but that becomes a concern with some of the doctors and you'll see a number probably more publications coming out about the dangers of these diets because of the atherogenic risk associated with LDL and pointing to it as an independent biomarker for cardiac health but I'm I'm not I think it's something that you need to monitor but generally speaking in most people not something to be overly concerned about yeah 100% and no thank you for the quick and efficient breakdown of that paper. And I think to me, it's, you know, one piece of evidence or data research does not dictate the field. And I think, especially for this example, right? How do we, we need to understand the context methodology, the exact measurements or experiments run, and then reconcile that with broader observation and broader data. And it sounds like, you know, I, I don't, you know, speaking for myself, I'm not dogmatic on any single intervention being right or wrong, but in terms of just reconciling this additional data point, and I don't think there's necessarily, you know, I, I don't want to overly claim that this was, you know, you know, conspiracy theory or, uh, or, or any of that, but I think it's like, even at, at face value, how do we incorporate that to what we do understand? And I think your argument around the existing epilepsy population that have been using ketogenic diet for decades, if yeah. <laughs> there was a cardiovascular disease risk from a ketogenic diet, then that population should have a higher incidence of heart attacks, right? I mean, that, that yeah. would literally be the perfect control group to actually test a hypothesis. And uh, it sounds like, the, yeah, the, as you said, the jury is in that there's no evidence of that. So that is a much more robust study to, to, to answer that question than yeah. what we've seen here, which is like a post facto observational study that I think, and I agree with you, is interpreted poorly or interpreted wrong, maybe just say even more strongly. And to tie it all back to beta hydroxybutyrate, which is cardioprotective. I mean, there's inborn errors of metabolism where ketones are delivered, even IV to help people with the cardiomyopathy, the enlargement of the heart associated with these disorders. And there's a number of you know, publications that have been written about that. So you have, this group is saying, that it's strictly due to beta hydroxybutyrate through the CERT pathway, you know, activating this pathway that contributes to a decrease in mitochondrial function through decreasing mitochondrial biogenesis, which leads to the fibrosis. So in the context of these restrictive 
highly formulated ketogenic diets that produce a very robust state of hyperketonemia for decades on top of a saturated fat consumption that's probably about 300 to 600% higher than the RDA easily uh, because it's like, you know, 80% fat or more. And you have patients that have, you know, have astronomically high beta hydroxybutyrate on top of saturated fat on top of not just doing this cyclically or doing this continuously to manage a disease process and not showing any signs of cardiac, let alone overt cardiac myopathy. I mean, they have really good, perfect cardiac function and even their, their blood work looks good. So that should have been in the discussion, you know, they should have, they, okay, they do consult. So the, they had a couple papers in there. One was a paper supporting their results. They said there was a paper that was done at university of Pennsylvania where they looked at, they reported there were patients that had a selenium deficiency and they had a couple patients on the ketogenic diet. Now these ketogenic diets were basically just drinking a liquid formulation, like the old keto cow, which was like hydrogenated soybean oil and casein and like, and not with the micronutrients that we know we need. Like we do need a patient on a ketogenic diet will become deficient in carnitine that has been shown. If it's not, if you don't supplement supplement with potassium, you have a higher chance of getting kidney stones, at least with the older diet. So potassium citrate is usually added to that. And then selenium, some people were getting, but you know, people are more knowledgeable about ketogenic diets now, and you have super high amounts of selenium and like foods that I like, like nuts and sardines are off the chart, organ meats and, you know, beef has like tons of selenium. So you're not even going to see like selenium deficiency, but that will cause cardiac issues. So I think, you know, you have to, it has to be, you have to look at this in context. So there was that study that they referenced, but they were not even, and the, the Johns Hopkins group agree, they were just really weird studies to, to reference to support their work. And another study I think showed that uh, was an elevation in triglycerides. So sometimes when you put kids on a ketogenic diet and you try to like force feed them so they don't lose weight, because uh, weight loss is a side effect of the ketogenic diet, at least in the epilepsy world. I mean, for adults, it's like what you're looking for, right? But when you put someone on a ketogenic diet and sort of try to get them to get in surplus amount of calories, then you'll, you will see an elevation of triglycerides and other atherogenic markers. But that's in the context of a certain type of ketogenic diet, typically not one you'd be using for weight loss. And when you're getting in surplus calories, which would be the opposite of what you're doing, if you're using a ketogenic diet for weight loss, you'd create a calorie deficit. So you would not see these these issues yeah. that they were. So there's like weird references that they're pointing to. Yeah, 100%. I mean, it, yeah, it, it makes sense, right? It's like energy balance. If you're trying to drive a caloric and energetic surplus, yeah. you're going to have higher amounts of substrate hanging around in the blood. It, it, yep. it just like basic systems engineering. If you just think of it from an energy balance perspective. Yeah, I want to focus or, or at least pivot towards the LDL story. I mean, I think it's absolutely just very, very much debated within the ketogenic community as well as the cardiovascular and just general food guidelines perspective. And we just had a really good conversation with Dr. Paul Mason, really just distinguishing between oxidized LDL versus LDL yeah. and really unpacking that story where LDL in of itself is overly demonized by its cousin oxidized, essentially damaged LDL. 
that's likely driving all of the issues with atherosclerosis as well as chronic disease. So we'd love to hear your thoughts and, and unpack that story a little bit more with you as well. Yeah, the LD, you know, the oxidized LDL, you know, I think would be causing. So he did he refer to a test for that? Is there a particular test that I have not? I've gotten an, an MR a while back and gotten did a lot of this work when I was started with a classical ketogenic diet, and I did see some concerning what I thought was concerning, you know, changes in my blood work with my LDL getting very high, but I was also to get the amount of calories that I needed, I was basically using a pint of heavy cream per day. And a steak actually has mostly oleic acid. So it's not like even super high in saturated fat, even like an egg yolk, you know, it's mostly like oleic acid, but the saturated fat that I was getting from dairy fat, a lot of butter and a lot of heavy cream when I started just getting more olive oil and more monounsaturated fats, and I don't know, you know, some clinicians who monitor patients with type 2 diabetes and, and weight loss say that in about three months, the LDL will come down. But I've seen patients where, you know, it just does not come down. But what I've seen is that, and maybe Dave Feldman too, his energy model, right? And I think the LDL will correlate, at least with me, with saturated fat. When my saturated fat is astronomically high and dairy is the highest really uh, highest percentage of saturated fat you'd be getting from dairy. So I backed off on like, you know, 250 grams of fat from dairy back to maybe I get like 50 grams of fat from dairy from like sour cream. My numbers are pretty much normal. They're in the high end of normal and probably slightly above their reference range for LDL, but they, they cut them in half. So I generally feel that's probably a good direction to go is, is to decrease you know, and people, cause I've seen some numbers that were like really like astronomically high, like four or 500, you know, LDL, but with triglycerides and, and other markers, you know, within healthy range and, and improving. And I think we do not understand if someone says they, that this is concerning when other biomarkers are improving and they point to LDL as an independent risk factor, LDLP, or B, whatever you want to call it, as an independent risk factor, all the data that we have on this is in the context of a, a normal diet. And we do not yet have the studies to understand this in the context of carbohydrate restricted diet. Uh, and that that's an important, until we have those studies, it's not, we cannot really fully understand and appreciate the atherogenic potential of the elevated LDL without those studies. And we just don't have that data yet. Yeah. And I think the availability, availability of some of the more advanced like NMR, just actually teasing out the density and particle size of LDL, I think is going to be especially informative, right? Like that's not part of the typical blood lipid result of, of LDL, HDL and triglycerides that you get at the doctor. So I think as we, you know, it basically have more availability and more data around the specific subtypes of LDL. I think that will illuminate this topic much, much more. And I think where I currently sit, I'm curious to get your like non, you know, official prediction or current working model. My current working model is that LDL in itself is not a concern as long as HDL is up, triglycerides are low and insulin is low, blood fasting blood glucose is low. I am not overly concerned with LDL. However, within LDL, if you can have an NMR and actually look at the particle sizes, especially if you have low, small, dense LDL, that is the type of LDL that is especially concerning. So if you have high general LDL, but low, small, dense L LDL, I, I think 
my personal opinion of, of how later in, literature interpreted data suggests that that is a, a fine metabolic state to be in. I'm curious if you have a general working hypothesis that's in agreement, out of agreement, a, a, a tweak to that statement. Curious. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And, and I think that we can't, we can't lose sight or take this out of context, right? It's like, you have to ask the person, how do they feel? If they feel like they have more energy, if someone goes on a low carb diet, ketogenic diet, and just does not feel good, I would say that's way more important than your LDL being activated. So it's how you feel. I think your weight, what your weight is doing, of course, and your blood pressure, probably one of the most important things like your sleep and probably like your blood glucose control. So decreasing glycemic variability and improving your glycemic control is above and beyond the most important thing. I mean, these are like, just there's people who just focus on this LDL and they put all their time and energy and resources into it without looking, maybe they're looking at the big picture, but I think it's, you know, they're not, they're not weighing in the other things that I, I think are, are most important. So, and I think triglycerides are far more important than, for example, you know, LDL, the tri trig HDL ratio. I have seen people with elevated, uh, and I think this goes back to the oxidized LDL. I think people that are in a state of inflammation, and I, I do think uh, CRP is a really good global marker of that. If you want to get into detail, we do Eve technology gives you like a 60 plus 60 plex cytokine test. And you can look at all the cytokines. But uh, for me personally, you know, I have my microphone here <laughs> sitting on a, a kit of the ZRT labs, cardio metabolic kit, and that does insulin. So I do a lot of insulin measurements with hemoglobin A1C and I correlate that with the CGM. Uh, but insulin, HSCRP are, are really important. So I'm working too on, on developing what I think is a good insulin sensitivity test. And maybe I could speak to you like offline about that. And I think it's a sensitive measure for insulin sensitivity. But yeah, fasting insulin, I think there's so many things that we should be focusing our, our attention on. But if you are, you know, you're the males in your family, and I know quite a few friends where they've, you know, passed away in their 50s and 60s, and they had really high cholesterol, but you know, they were, my family is kind of like that in some ways, but they might've been smokers or they drank alcohol or whatever. You have to factor in your genetics too. And if you're APOE44, and your cholesterol is astronomically off the charts, you know, it may be a good idea to take a statin, like a half a dose on twice a week, you know, to bring it down, not into normal range, but, you know, to just bring it down a little bit. But I think that your LDL is actually a major important factor for your immune system. And I think one way to basically... <laughs> kill your immunological resilience is to push your LDL down with a statin. LDL has a really important role in the immune system. So you're doing, and that's probably why people, there's a negative correlation too with low or positive correlation with low LDL and all cause mortality, right? Yeah. So I think, you know, lowering HDL is much more dangerous than keeping it in the high end and high end of normal, I think is optimal. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. once you're, yeah. once you're well double stated. the high end of normal. Just, yeah. I was say, yeah. Well stated in terms of just like the nuances here. And I think yep. within nutrition, it's like not a lot of nuance where I think a lot of the gurus like to say, here is the one magic diet. And I think, yeah, I, exactly. I would not, I would hundred percent agree. So much is based on your personal genetic 
profile mm-hmm. where your current state is and what your goal is, right? And I think that's where it's interesting from a therapeutic perspective or elite performance perspective or a longevity perspective. That's where the journey gets really, really fun, where you have a, essentially a combinatorial fact, like explosion of all these combinations of uh, we all have different starting positions and different places that we all want to go. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's where getting up to speed on kind of the systems uh, of, of how all these levers and, and, and kind of work together is is the I think part of the the, the funness and I think the open like the, the like the open nature of of nutrition because I think about like what are the fields of science just historically and nutrition is essentially one of the longest standing endeavors of humanity like the a- ancient humans like oh I should eat this like oh you eat that you die you eat this you're okay right like yeah. like we've been running this nutrition experiment literally for every single generation and yet in some ways we still do not know what and how to answer these questions very very well at all i mean i think yeah. we probably know that now eating refined sugar is probably bad like i mean like basically almost like definitively bad but other than like a few of these almost obvious things it's still very much like a very aggressive academic debate, which is surprising mm-hmm. in some sense, because it's a daily experiment we all run. We all eat something or mm-hmm. eat nothing, but like that's still a choice of some sort of eating behavior. And every single generation of humans have been running this experiment. Yeah, and I'm actually okay with sugar too. Uh, I'm watching, what am I, we're watching Alone in the Arctic, you know, that Alone series where they drop people off like 10 people and then yeah. they, they fall out. And because uh, we're going to Alaska tomorrow and you know, one person was dropped off in an area where just massive amount of blueberries. Those are just like, you know, they're not very good at catching animals or killing animals. So, uh, but the people who historically like survive long-term need to take down and have a good source of animal protein and diet, but the, you know, things like blueberries and, you know, which actually stimulate uh, a pretty big uh, glycemic response in me, less so with the natural wild blueberries. But if I just buy the generic, you know, Walmart brand blueberries, I could get a get a spike from that. So, um, you know, I, I, I'm okay with, with sugar in the diet. And I think the low carb ketogenic diet is just a tool that should mostly be used for people that are, um, you know, athletes, for example, and I get a lot of athletes that email me about, you know, low carb diet is a ketogenic diet. They're like, they're the group of people that would probably need it the least. And they are, have a very high carb tolerance and in the context of what they do, that might be optimal for them. It's probably would not be optimal to be on a ketogenic diet for most athletes. Of course, people like Zach Bitter, you know, have leveraged the ketogenic diet and their massive fat oxidation capability through metabolic flexibility. And they leverage that to their advantage to win titles and they're yeah. probably winning a lot more than they would otherwise. So I think there are certain advantages, but um, I, I think we need to promote, you know, metabolic flexibility and use a mixed diet. Although... I, I'm, I don't follow that rule because I'm pretty much always low carb. Uh, I have been testing some ketone supplements and I was eating some pop tarts and a lot of fruits to kick me out. So when I measure my ketone levels and I've been using a breath ketone analyzer, the biosense breath app, uh, and also, you know, I have the keto mojo here. And uh, of course the, the precision extra, what I do notice is that when my ketones get elevated to a certain level, I just get into a flow state. And if I have a lot of work to do, uh, actually what I do, if I'm get completely overwhelmed with work, I fast for three days, which I try to do that on a quarterly cycle. 
And then I get, sometimes I get overwhelmed because there's so much I want to read and get done. And I just put it to the side. And during that three days of fasting is when I go into a reading binge and I have a notepad and I have a stack of papers. And then I take, I, I just absorb and just binge off reading all the papers and create a whole pile of notes on all the specific topics. And this is like something I do. It's like, I look um, forward to it. So that- it's all reading. Cause I think, especially now there's just like so much, like you can, all of us can be so busy doing infinite activities. And I think that's been one of the parts that's been hard to do more extended fasts. Cause like in some sense, like yeah. you miss the fun of eating or like the ritual, the social context of eating. So it's like, if you're just like, gonna yeah. just do heads deep, heads down, deep work, it's actually kind of like a good way to just stack all those things together where it's like a part of your, of your lifestyle and routine. And no, I think, if, yeah. And I hundred percent agree in terms of the application of sugar, right. I have, mm-hmm. I should walk that statement back, right. Because for elite athletes, like pure refined sugar is actually one of the most potent performance ergogenics, right? Like, I, I'd agree with and that. I think yeah, that's how, totally. yep. you know, I'm sure athletes that you work with or consult with or advise, especially when they're using exogenous ketones as a sup, as an ergogenic supplement, right. You, you know, the best practice is to stack sugar and exogenous ketones at the same time to get the maximum amount of substrate available for a very intense exercise. Yep. So in that sense, there, again, it, go, it goes from your genetics to your current state, to your goals, exactly how to mm-hmm. implement nutrition. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, fast burning, slow burning carbs, creatine, ketones in a couple different forms, fats, and even maybe lactate, like alpha L polylactate. And it was using the product Cytomax. I use it for years when I was mountain bike racing. So I think you can create formulas where you're delivering. And when you deliver one particular fuel, just like sugar, then you're going to cause osmotic changes and you're going to back up the system and it's not going to be very efficient. But if you deliver ratios of fuel that your body can use more effectively, then you're, you're utilizing many different energetic pathways and you can coax the cells into generating energy in a more sustained, predictable way than just downing <laughs> one particular fuel source. hundred yeah. percent. I, I think that's where I, like I'm personally excited. I'm sure it sounds like that's an area that you've been putting some of your thought and, and, and energy into as well. Just mm-hmm. because it's so, I think it's so hard to, it's like, so it's, I think that the literature to date has been so vague or not very precise. And a lot of the actual practitioners are just elite, like Olympic or world championship level athletes. And they're not very open to sharing their data publicly. I feel like there's like absolutely some sort of like small group of people that have some collection of data that's not really publicly well known in terms of quote unquote best practices of all these kind of witch doctor kind of brews of combinations. But it, it, it would be awesome or just very interesting to start benchmarking those witch brew kind of case studies that elite athletes yeah. are experimenting with on an N equals one basis and, and like something out broadly. Right. And I think just by nature of these types of communities, whether it's elite athletes or special operations, it ends up being like a lot of best practices and, and, and mm-hmm. applications are kind of locked up in, in some, a few people's heads. Yeah. I've picked the brains of many people, you know, and I think, uh, you probably saw the movie Icarus, which is kind of yep. neat and, you know, and cyclists maybe take it to another level, but what has kind of been surprising is that many, there's people that are at the the top, top level, especially like CrossFit athletes that are just basically just getting in calories 
you know, they're by with you get the training, the, the mental state and the mindset. And you just, as long as your protein requirements are met, it's like, man, you can throw in Coke, you can throw in, you know, Snickers bars, you can throw in anything and maintain and excel and be, it might not be optimal, but, uh, but I think as long as the calories are there, your protein needs are met for regeneration and repair and, uh, you know, your, your training program is kind of on key and you've kind of personalized it. We're all like unique metabolic entities. So there is some personalization that needs to happen, but I think what you're saying is, yeah, if you talk to enough people, you could probably put together best practices and it might be, you know, unique to each sport and definitely unique to each person, but only with like probably a 10% wiggle room because human physiology is human physiology. Right. (laughs) And, uh, and that individual metabolic, you know, entity, that person, uh, it's a result really of their training. So if someone trains like CrossFit, you know, five, six hours a day, their physiology is going to be different than the ultra endurance person or the power lifter who's just kind of lifting for like an hour, you know, uh, yeah. three or four times a week. Yeah. Maybe going back to one of the original topics of this conversation any insights from your reading of the literature about metabolic health, metabolic flexibility for COVID? I'm, I'm very optimistic that we're coming to the tail end of this pandemic. So I'm excited to, you know, finally get back to normal. But it seems like there's so much literature that is so suggest, suggestive, if not something that our politicians and public health leaders should really be implementing just more aggressively, right? I think a lot of the talking heads have been talking about social distancing and vaccines and all of that good stuff. And I think those are all very, very sensible, but it's surprising to me that no one talks about metabolic health. No one talks about getting some sun and elevating your vitamin D status. And these are very, very cheap, if not free interventions. Any thoughts there? Is it frustrating from a research or academic perspective where you have some of these insights and data, or is it just something that is not in your research area? I'm curious to get your thoughts there. No, we, we did a deep dive into, I have a student that's kind of an undergrad, very interested in this. And we've kind of tailored the product, you know, the, the project with a really a focus on, you know, metabolic health, looking at glycemic control. And I think there's a lot to understand if we had enough people wearing CGMs and we looked at the incidence of COVID and then the outcomes, I I think you'd see that glycemic variability and elevation of glycemic variability would correlate to more, you know, an impaired immune system and, and poor outcomes. And I think that's a really important variable to look at. Yeah. From just a very like 30,000 foot perspective, it's just, you know, losing weight. (laughs) You know, if you weight clamp someone and my colleague, uh, Barbara Hansen has done, you know, decades of work on non-human primates and, and she's of the opinion, you know, you can basically impact insulin sensitivity by just weight clamping. If you weight clamp someone, you know, as they age, their insulin sensitivity will come, come down a little bit, but it's that elevation it's like a synergistic effect as we age and gain weight that creates a synergy of making you super vulnerable to covid whereas if you age you know just aging alone increases your vulnerability but when you age and increase your weight 
then there's a synergistic relationship there. Yep. So I think just from a 30,000 foot perspective, you know, maintaining a healthy weight is probably the most important thing to do. And there's different tools to do that. We are of the opinion, low carb ketogenic diets are a way to get to your weight goals. And then weight maintenance can be done through a variety of different uh, ways. But yeah, you point out good things like getting sun, you know, fresh air. That's why we moved out to the country. Uh, I put into my schedule of the day to be outside in the sun in Florida. We get a lot of it and to get physical activity are like key things, vitamin D key things, zinc, vitamin C. So we take a supplement that's like a combination of that all in one supplement, like an immune defense supplement. I think we'll put that in the next newsletter or something. I've been using it for the last couple of weeks. Yeah. These are things that the government should be promoting because it would save a lot of healthcare dollars <laughs> if they did yeah. advocate for those things instead of, uh, yeah, I was just thinking about some of the, it, it's, it's, it's just sad because if I, I think the data, another thing that's a jury is in on, if you just look at countries with incidents of obesity, it just full stop. It's just a, it's just a line countries with less incidence of obesity just are doing better than countries that have a high rate of obesity. And yeah. America, we have a lot of obese people in this country. I mean, that's just a fact. And, and I think it feels like it's not PC or not polite or mean to say, and I'm not saying this in a judgmental way, just a fact, 75% of Americans are overweight, obese. And, and yeah, that, 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 that is terrible from a chronic health in a population health perspective. And then two, I just read a liter like a survey from American uh, Psychology Society where there was some some substantial percentage of Americans gained weight through the quarantine and pandemic, and uh, this this and, and for the millennial demographic, it was an average of forty one pounds gained. Wow, <laughs> for person and or? and it feels like it seems really odd. Like our public health leaders are not talking about that for, again, it feels like you're fat shaming and, 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 and these kind of negative connotation things. And it's not, and I, I, and I really do mean it. I don't want anyone to feel ashamed about their body size or, you know, any of that stuff, but it just like a, literally a metabolic fact, a health outcome fact that being obese is not good for your longevity and especially not good for your resiliency to a pandemic. And no one's talking about that. Yeah, you're, you're right. In a real way. Yeah, there needs to be, I think what needs to happen is there needs to be an honest, authentic discussion and transparency about this where we have like a primetime special, like a two hour special, like, you know, when the president gets on and speaks or something like that. So everybody tune in, listen to this. Maybe the president should like say, here are the things that we can do. And then follow up with like a two hour documentary <laughs> on the real cause, uh, things that we can do, actionable things that we can do. And I think it needs to just hit a critical mass of the population need to get this information to start moving the needle on that. But, you know, if you can tell, you can tell someone to do something, but if you don't have you know, a framework and incentive to do it. And a lot of people are just confused about how to do it. So that's why I'm a big proponent of, you know, as you're wearing a CGM and using, you know, a software program, it, that the, the continuous glucose monitor and the software become a behavioral tool. We could know exactly what to do 
But if we don't gamify it, like if we don't make it a game and if we don't create the community, you know, I spent all my time in cell biology and physiology and the hard sciences. But the more I look into this problem, I realize it's a behavioral health problem and that we really need tools that can change human behavior. And there's different ways to do that. And we need to consult with, you know, behavioral psychologists way. But one thing that I see that just simply wearing a CGM and looking at, you know, the level software or whatever, I think, okay, well, I'm not going to eat that again. Or if I eat that, I'm going to change, you know, I'm going to mix, mix that food with something else. And then, you know, over time, when I look at my own data, then I can modify and optimize my metabolic health just by using wearable devices and having feedback and, and, you know, the software also giving you not only just data to look at, but actually giving you informative, actionable things to do to help, you know, understand your metabolic health and to optimize it. And, and not only are you losing weight, looking better and having more energy, you are improving your immune system in a way that would, you know, give you resilience against getting this virus. 100%. Yeah, I think, I think well said in terms of, again, not attacking people, but just educating and helping build incentives. And I think yeah. also like conversations like these, just like, hey, let's just talk about it in like a non-judgmental, just more of an educational format. And allow it to be long form where you can dive into the context and the nuance and at least open up people to it. Right. Like you can't tell people, Hey, you're, you're too fat, like lose weight. Like people don't know how to do that. Like, I think and you talk to some of these folks that they know they're too fat and they want to lose weight. It's not like they're mm. trying to be fat. So I think it's like, we need to have some sort of compassionate, but more effective ways to induce that kind of behavioral change. And, and eventually that behavioral change will be a population health and, and cultural change. I think if, more and more people were not chronically diseased, essentially. I think we just have a healthier, happier, more productive society, which I think we all would want to sign up for. And there's an industry, unfortunately, there's an industry trying to capitalize off this by promoting it, providing resources, you know, webinars you pay for, supplements you pay for, or something like that. And it becomes really disheartening to see like kind of people fat shaming to really sell their product or promote, you know, I see a lot of that stuff going and there's kind of, you know, just a lot of attitudes out there that, that are just, it's really unfortunate. So, yeah. uh, but I think that, mean. I think that's the thing. Yeah. It's, it's, it, but, but it needs to go prime time. Like we need to acknowledge this and we need to put an action plan in place and look at the science and see like, how can we best move the needle? And it really does come to, you know, bringing down the body weight of the, American population in a way that maybe brings people together uh, in a way that that empowers them instead of making them feel shameful. And I think there's there's different ways to do that, but we need to be. It's not just telling them what to eat. I think I think that's important, but we need to have tools in place to change our behavior. Hundred percent, hundred percent. So I I mean almost ninety minutes have gone by. So I want to wrap up with uh, with a final question here. We're about to end Q1 2021. As I mentioned, I am hopefully knock on wood. We're wrapping up this pandemic and hopefully things can go more back towards normal. Hopefully I don't jinx it here. What, what's what's top of mind for you for the rest of the year? Any exciting research projects? I know that it sounds like there's 
books, projects, podcasts, all that stuff. I know you're super busy. Any highlights you can share or tease for us as we wrap up here? Yeah, I don't know which one to pick, but we have a lot of things going on. My wife told me the other day, she's spearheading a project uh, called High Seas, which is a, a space analog mission in Hawaii. So we're excited about that. And I think Oh, I'm not sure I can like give the date of that, but it's basically like a Mars simulation in Hawaii and it's working, you know, with the space agency to vet out and basically understand different tools and different procedures and different, you know, even wearable devices and things. And in the context of a, a space like Mars analog mission. So that's good. It's kind of cool working on that front. And we have, you know, a lot of publications in the works, uh, getting out the exogenous ketone studies from different capacities. And my student, you know, is working on, I never thought when I started studying ketones in the ketogenic diet, that we would be looking at them as epigenetic regulators. So that's a whole nother area of science that we are really digging into and doing active research on right now. So ketone bodies as not just energy metabolites, but uh, regulators of our epigenome. And I think that's, yeah, that's you know, we're, super, do, we're doing the research yeah, we now. We have to put a bookmark yeah. on that. We got to have you back yep. on to talk about that because that's a super fascinating area for me as well. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a very rapid moving area and a lot of people are scrambling to get to the space. And it was a little bit kind of leery to go in that direction because I wasn't completely convinced that they were powerful epigenetic regulators. But uh, the more I delve into the science, I realized, okay, this is something that we have to study. So we'll find out. I say the jury is still out whether, but it, it looks like, you know, not only ketones, but all metabolites. Metabolites are epigenetic regulators, like lactate can regulate. There's but it's interesting that beta-hydroxybutyrate through a process called beta-hydroxybutyrylation. So beta-hydroxybutyrate can actually, through interacting directly with the histone, cause epigenetic changes. Yep. So that's what we're kind of focused on and trying to understand that and how that is influencing different, different pathways. So that's like our sort of very finite focus at the moment and among a lot of other things too. But cool. I'm well, kind of interested um, in that. Always a pleasure to speak with you. Feels like we've definitely let some uh, some cliffhangers here for the next episode. So mm -hmm. thanks so much for your time and we'll have you on back soon. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me, Jeff.